Even as we speak today, as we gather here and we worship the Lord in relative safety, there are people around this globe who have borne witness and testimony to Christ and who are suffering, who are being persecuted. There are those who are in prison and they're rotting there in prison. They're starving to death for the sake of the glory of Christ. There are those who have embraced Jesus Christ and have been disowned by their families. They've been kicked out. And they have no recourse for making a living, making ends meet. Even as I preach right now, it is possible that somewhere around this globe, there is a Christian who stands and who says, I can not deny my Savior, and who will die today for that testimony. One of the things that we must, must, must do is that we must not believe that the Christian life and Christian theology is 21st century Midwest United States of America Bible Belt. We live in a much bigger world than that. And there are thousands upon thousands, if not millions upon millions of people right now who are facing oppression and persecution for the sake of Christ. As we look at Revelation, our text today will be Chapter 6, verses 9, and down through 11, the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. Remember, there John saw the throne, and there was one sitting on the throne with a scroll in his right hand, and there was no one found worthy in all of creation to open the scroll, but then the Lamb the lamb that had been slain. The lamb that had been slain, but with crowns and horns. The lamb that had been slain, Christ, who now reigns, was found worthy to open the scroll. This scroll represents God's sovereign decrees and purposes carried out in this world. And Christ now in our text, is opening these seals. And as he opens each one of these seals, dreadful things take place. We saw the first seal, the lamb opened the seal and one went forth, conquering and to conquer. The second seal was opened and there was conflict upon the earth and people killed one another with the sword, the third seal was opened and there was economic hardship and famine. The fourth seal is opened and there is widespread death. And from all of this, we see and have proclaimed that God is a God of judgment and a God of justice. People cannot, cannot oppose God day in and day out and not expect judgment and justice to fall upon them. We live in a sin-sick world. We live in a world of rebellion against God. And we are unfaithful to God if we do not see wars and famines and such things as being judgments of God upon sin. The big picture that we've seen throughout this is that God is in control. Who opens these seals? It is the Lamb. Who opens the seals? And today, 
As we look at this fifth seal, we will see the cry of those who have been faithful to Christ unto death. And we will see some things about God's sovereignty and his plan and his nature and character. Beginning with verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. It's time to get serious, folks. We dare not approach this text with flippancy. We dare not approach this text with our minds focused on trivial things out there or in here. It's time to get serious. Examine your heart and your thoughts right now. Pray for me. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So here, again, the lamb is opening the seals that are on the scroll. And with each one of these, John is seeing a vision. He's seeing something take place. Here he sees souls. And souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. He sees souls of those who had been martyred. We use the word martyr to refer to those who have died. And in the Christian sense who have died. For the testimony of Christ who have died rather than deny Christ. Who have died in the cause of Christ at the hands of wicked People, the word martyr literally means witness. And so there are those for the sake of bearing witness to Christ say, I will not deny him. Though thou slay me. And here John sees this vision of souls under the altar. So this is a a vision of heaven. This is not a vision of earth. The previous seals were visions of things taking place upon the earth. Now John's seeing the heavenly scene. So down at the base of the altar, he sees these souls. The Bible teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When a believer dies, their body is consumed here in this life. It goes into the ground, it goes into the sea, it's burnt up, whatever happens to it. But the spiritual aspect of the person, their soul, their spirit, goes to be with the Lord. And with the Lord awaits the resurrection day when the spirit will be reunited with a perfect resurrected body, a flawless resurrected body. The souls of those who are lost go to Hades, a place of imprisonment, a place of torment, until they too are raised from the dead and they will be united with a resurrected body which will not decay, which will not be destroyed, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire, referring to what we would call hell for all eternity. But 
Notice here as we see this in these souls proclaiming that there's a consciousness there. The Bible does not teach the erroneous doctrine called soul sleep. Or the idea that when people die they cease consciousness and then they will awaken again later in time. Some have taken figurative statements in scripture that refer to the dead as sleeping and they've used that to support a doctrine that the dead are unconscious in the grave. They've taken passages of scripture in places like Ecclesiastes and others that refer to human beings after death from our perspective up here in this life where it'll say things like there's no consciousness in the grave or no remembrance in the grave. And they'll say, oh, well, that means that someone dies and and they're not conscious. They can't remember. No, it's referring from our human, earthly, horizontal perspective up here. Because we look at passages such as 2 Corinthians 5 and it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We look at passages like our text here and these souls crying out. We look at passages like Lazarus and the rich man and we see there that the wicked man is in torment but the one who is righteous is in paradise and they are conscious of what is going on. So he sees under the altar the souls of those, notice, who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So these these martyrs were not slain because they were standing against emissions from gas hog vehicles or whatever else. They are slain. Because they are faithful to the word of God and they give testimony, they proclaim Christ and his commandments. There have been many such throughout history as we think about the Reformation. We think of all of those who died, many of them dying with horrific deaths such as being burned alive at the stake. What were their crimes? Things such as saying the word of God ought to be in the language of the people so that people can read it. So that people can have God's word directly rather than filtered through the hands of corrupt priests and rather than proclaimed in Latin masses where They cannot understand it. They died being faithful to the word of God. They died giving testimony. These would include here, if we go back even before the Reformation, we think of the first martyr. Perhaps children, you know who the first martyr in the early church was? We think of Stephen as he was stoned to death. But even in the midst of standing there and being on on trial before these men who held his physical life in their hands, he proclaimed to them their wickedness and that they had in fact crucified the Messiah. And then they took up stones and literally they smashed his body and his head with hard stones until he died. As we think about this and and make a brief application from this, God hasn't called us to a life of ease as believers. God hasn't promised us what we have right now. Here here we sit, 
I don't know about you, but I don't have any real justifiable fear that anybody's going to come bursting through that door right now. Now we know in our nation that there have been shootings in churches. But when you do the math, the probability of that happening right here, right now, it's less less probable than a meteorite landing on this building and killing us all. We, right now where we sit, don't live in justifiable fear of immediate death for proclaiming Christ. But there are people around this world right now who very justifiably realize that that could happen to them. You go to many nations that have a firm Islamic rule and there are those who take their lives in their own hands as they proclaim the gospel of Christ. But even in the midst of those nations, God has been working. Think of Iran and the underground movement of the gospel as it's gone forth. And you think about even in Syria, the Syrian Christians, and as the darkness of ISIS has affected a region, the light of the gospel has shone even brighter in it. God hasn't promised us that we will not face opposition and persecution in this life. As a matter of fact, he says that we will. As believers. Look at Philippians chapter 1 for just a moment. Philippians 1, and as we're, as we're thinking about this, I, what I want us to do, I want us to be prepared in advance. I want us to be thinking through this in advance. You know, what happens, to, what happens to a couch potato who gets up one morning and says, I'm going to go run the marathon today? They get out there and they die. What happens to Christians who sit and they never think about and never train for and never are disciplined to work towards being faithful in the little things so that when the big things happen, they're ready for action. I don't want us to think that none of these things could happen to us. Philippians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christ who died so that we could have life. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. We are not to live in fear of those who can kill our bodies. Jesus said it this way, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but rather fear him who after he has destroyed the body can destroy the spirit and soul in hell. And he wasn't talking about Satan. He was talking about fearing God. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. Notice this in verse 29. For you... It has been granted, gifted 
been given to you. On behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. How many, how many times do you see uh, that little statement on nice little flowery memes on Facebook or bumper stickers with little smiley faces around it? Or in books of promises of God. Here's a promise from God. It's been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ. There have been men and women throughout history who have walked to their executions singing praises to God and saying, praise God that I am worthy, counted worthy by him to die for his glory. And we get bent all out of shape if an unbeliever at work smirks when we say something about the faith. We get all woe is me if we're at college and we have a professor that opposes the Christian faith. And woe is me, what am I going to do? I can't. We get all bent out of shape when we turn on the news and we see unbelievers acting like unbelievers toward Christians. And we start to panic and we start to fear. What are we going to do? Well, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to say, praise God for an opportunity to bring glory to his name right now. Because Jesus walked willingly to a cross and let them nail him to a cross. And he bore the wrath of God so that I can bear testimony to his love because he did it for me. The apostles... Look over, look over at Acts. And chapter 5. And the apostles, we'll we'll look to the end of the chapter in verse 40. The apostles had been told, do not preach Christ. They preached Christ. They're thrown in prison. They're taken before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And they're told again, do not preach Jesus. And they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. They're beaten. They are sent forth. In verse 40, it says, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And so they went out with their heads drooped. They went out saying, oh, woe is me. What are we going to do? How are we going to survive in this type of culture? Surely Jesus didn't mean for this to happen to us. What it They departed the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Rejoice when you are despised and persecuted for my name's sake. He said, Happy are you. That's radical. That's radical. That's crazy. Well, it would be crazy if we didn't realize that we had a Savior that walked the way before us and who died so that we could be saved and who says, 
live for my glory and this life is not all. But there's more to come. Just wait. Just wait. Okay, that's the easiest part to preach from this text. Back to Revelation chapter 6. What are these martyrs crying out? The voice of, of these who have died for the testimony, the word of God and the testimony to Christ. What are they crying out? And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they crying out for? They're crying out for justice, for judgment to come upon those who have wickedly slain them and slain their brothers and sisters in the Lord. What's, what's the response? Are they rebuked? Are they told, you do not know what spirit you are of. Get behind me, Satan. Are they told, no, 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 no. I am only a God of love. There will be no judgment. What happens? A white robe was given to each of them. White here, signifying victory. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. You see, there's no hint of a rebuke here for their statement. Now let's consider in more detail the statement that they make. First of all, in their cry, they acknowledge the holiness and the faithfulness of God. They acknowledge that God is pure and that He is righteous. They acknowledge that God is faithful to His word and to His promises and to His nature and to His character. So what's going on here in, in their acknowledging and in fact even calling upon God to be faithful to himself. Really, I think that's implied here when they say, oh, Lord, holy and true. How long? It's implied here that they are calling upon God. And saying, you are faithful, you are holy We know you will do this. How long until it takes place? And, and you see, it's a, it's a how long question. It's a timing question. It's not an if question. You are going to do this. You see this? They're, they're not saying, God, are you going to avenge? They're saying, Lord, how long before you do it? And what's, what's the implication? The implication is, as they consider injustice, and they consider those who are being persecuted, and as they consider what has been done to them and to, to their brethren, their hearts are crying out for justice. But where, where are they crying out from? Where are these souls? They're in heaven. So can we sweep this under the rug and say this is a, an unrighteous sentiment? That this is an unjust desire? We can't because can there be unrighteousness and injustice in the presence of God? 
in heaven by his children who have left this life and are now with him. There cannot be. So what they're saying is absolutely righteous to ask God how long until you avenge our blood. Notice what they're asking. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We've got to get this right, folks. They're not saying here, and this is, I'm just reading the text. They are not saying, Lord, save every one of those who has slain your martyrs. They're not saying that here. They're saying how long until you judge and avenge our blood. And it's a righteous statement. And they're not rebuked for it. Now we we wrestle with this a little bit because we think about the words of Jesus and he said, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And, And we ask how, how is this how is this sentiment how is this thought consistent with loving your enemies with praying for your enemies this also brings up to us does it not if you've read through the scriptures questions about statements in other passages in the bible such as in the psalms There are psalms which are called imprecatory psalms. An imprecation is a curse. It's a curse. And there are psalms where the psalmist, inspired by God, is calling down curses upon the enemies of God. Look at Psalm 69. We're we're not going to gloss over this. We mustn't gloss over this. We need to seek to understand. The psalmist here, David, begins crying out unto the Lord to save him. And he describes his condition... He acknowledges in chapter 5 that he is a sinful person. He says in in verse 4 that there are those who hate him without a cause. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm just and I'm righteous in the oppression that I am facing. He describes that in more detail. And then in verse 18... He says, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Does that sound familiar? This psalm is quoted four times in the New Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament statement. Quoted by Jesus. It's quoted by the Apostle Paul. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. 
Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. We can't gloss this or tone it down. It's not even just that he is praying here for the physical justice and death of his enemies. He's praying for their damnation. It's what it says. Let them be blotted out of the book of the righteous. And we see in Revelation 6 that the cry of the martyrs, righteous souls in heaven, goes out. So what what do we make of this? How do we understand this? For one thing, as beings made in the image of God, and especially as those who are being renewed to the image of Christ, his children, we have an innate sense of justice. There are very few people in this world who do not have a sense of justice. There are very few people in this world who become so calloused that they become sociopathic in their actions and there is no sense in their hearts or lives of justice. We long for justice. When we turn on the news and we hear about a shooting in Las Vegas, in that instance, the gunmen took his own life. But there's a sense in which our hearts cry out and say there needs to be justice for those who are slain. As believers, when we think about the millions upon millions of innocent children in the womb who have been slain, and this has been justified by law, our hearts cry out for justice. We say there there must be justice. There is evil in this world. There are innocent people being tortured and being abused. Is there no justice? And as we see these things taking place, we, we have this. You've all had this happen, have you not? A righteous indignation well up within you? And you long for justice? God does not say that we must smash that inclination. The the broad picture of Scripture is not that any time we see horrific actions carried out against oppressed or innocent persons in this life, that we have to smash that feeling of indignation and a desire for justice down because that was old covenant or or something like that. So first of all, as we think about this, and that psalm that I read, Psalm 69, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, and he's speaking about the Jewish people being judicially blinded and hardened by God and facing judgment. And he doesn't say this. This is a, a wicked psalm, and we, we mustn't look to it. We mustn't think about it. He doesn't say it's an old covenant sentiment when God was angry and wrathful, but now in Christ he's come and he's not. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that that God is just and that the divinely inspired voice of David there was desiring judgment on unrepentant sinners. We have to start there. We have to start with the the cry of the martyrs was a righteous cry. 
we can clearly, I think, and I, I think this is clearly reconcilable with Jesus' statements, but we can, and hear me on this carefully, we can say, and we can say it righteously, and we can feel it righteously, God is just, and he will one day bring about absolute justice in this universe where every atrocity is accounted for, and I want that to happen. I want God to be just. As a matter of fact, we are sinning if we say, I do not want God to be just. Now, now we wrestle because we think of we think of loved ones who are unsaved and we weep that they would be saved, and that's that's right. <laughs> it's right for us to weep that the wicked perishes. And the Bible says. In Ezekiel, God says that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he desires for them to repent and to turn. But the Bible teaches that God is also just, and he must execute justice, and he will execute justice, and that we, his people, will rejoice in the justice that he brings about. So there's, there's a little bit, a little bit of the, the then and now, as we think about now, and then there's also a little bit of whether or not someone has exited this life or whether they're still in it. There's a little bit of that, too. Have you ever found yourself um, thinking or praying through a situation and then realizing, you know what, uh, it doesn't do any good for me to pray for that because it's already settled? <laughs> have, have you ever been there? You know, if anybody starts praying for the souls of their dead loved ones, it's too late. That's already settled. God says there is once to die and then the judgment. It's too late at that point. God doesn't want you to pray that a dead loved one be saved because you're praying for an impossibility. I've had situations where I was praying that something that had already occurred in the past might not take place. And then I realized, wait a minute, it's already happened. It, <laughs> I can't change that. So the facts of the case, I can't pray, oh Lord, may it be that this person never did that. Because they either did or didn't. <laughs> but we as believers can pray that God will be just. We can even pray that God will bring about his just and righteous judgment upon all who refuse to repent and bow before Christ. And you see, we know in our hearts, even our hearts cry out for this. Now, does that mean it's wrong for us to pray? As Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. As Christ prayed, no, of course not. Of course not. But it would be sin for me to pray, Lord, do not judge them and do not bring vengeance upon them. Even if they don't repent, even if they don't embrace Christ, even if they don't come to faith, that would be a, a sinful prayer because it would be sinning against the very nature and character of God. It would be saying, God, you are not holy, you are not true. You're a corrupt judge who can just sweep things under the rug. What do, we, do our hearts not even cry out for justice when we hear about judges who abuse their authority and they let the wicked walk scot-free? 
Judges who at a whim will sweep under the rug horrific crimes for the sake of expediency. We say, no, that's unjust. That ought not to be. It ought not to be. Would we expect that of God? So, the longing for justice is a God-given longing. And it is not something that we are to suppress. But the balance in scripture is that we are to recognize that God is the one who takes vengeance. And that's not up to us to take vengeance. Right? That's clear. Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's not, that's not heaping coals of fire like, ha ha, die! <laughs> it's saying, though, that you do, you do good to them. You recognize that God is the one who will judge and bring about vengeance. It's not in your hands. And then the, the coals of fire statement, there were some ancients who would, to humiliate themselves or show how humble they were, would walk through the streets with a pan on their head with hot coals in that pan. And so it's indicating a, a humbling or a humility. When we as God's people do good to the people who spit in our faces and who curse us, we turn around and say, good things about them, and we seek their good, that humbles the person. They may not become humble in and of themselves, but anybody who's seeing rightly will say, boom, that, that person is brought low by this person's actions. Who's the bigger man here? The one puffed up and bullying, or the one who is turning around and doing good? But in the midst of, of even that in Romans 12, it is saying God is just, turn it over to him and he will bring about vengeance. He will bring about vengeance. And here's, here's the reality. Something to think about and take, take home. As you independently wrestle with injustices that you have faced or that you have seen, others face and wrestling with how do I think about this and what is God's role the reality is every wicked deed every sin will receive justice either those who commit the sins will not repent and bow before Christ and they will be damned and face eternal, the eternal wrath and vengeance of God. Or, if they repent and through faith embrace the work of Christ, then the judgment, the justice, the vengeance for those sins fall on Christ. There is not a single sinful action in this life that will be unaccounted for. If it were so, God would be unjust. He would not be faithful and true. We would not be able to trust Him. It is not that we proclaim in the gospel message that God is just so merciful that He sweeps our sins under the rugs and He just arbitrarily forgives us of sin. No, a price was paid a high price was paid. The highest price was paid. God's own son bore God's fierce vengeance, justice, and judgment upon sin for all those who will place their faith in Jesus. And there's not a single sin that will be unaccounted for in this universe. 
So for us, as we live in the midst of injustice and we cry out to God, how long we can take comfort in the fact that God will judge rightly. We can take comfort that God will judge rightly. And you know what? The the fact of the matter is our shoulders are not big enough to bear the burden of vengeance. That weight is too great. It would crush us. But God's big enough. The fact of the matter is our knowledge is too small to rightly enact vengeance. But God can handle it because he knows everything. Down to the very thoughts of, of the hearts of people, right? We can turn that over to God. But we can rightly say, Lord, if they do not repent, be faithful and true to who you are and bring vengeance upon them. We can rightly say that. We can rightly say that. What are what are they given? What are these souls here who cry out given as an encouragement? One, they're given this white robe, symbolic of the fact that they were faithful and true. They had victory. They overcame. And they're being rewarded by God. But what is said here? What is given to them as a, a comfort? As they righteously cry out. It's that they should rest a little while longer. Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Do, do you get that? What, what do we see in this statement? One, God has a plan and he has an exact timing in his plan. There's an exact number of martyrs written in God's book. And God's judgment and justice will not come until the last of those that God has ordained would be martyred for faith in him have died. I don't know how we could read through Revelation without seeing the sovereignty of God over and over and over again. If if so, we're not reading with our eyes open. (laughs) And this is not, the the Bible does not present in any way, shape, or form that there is somehow this, this raw determinism out there and God is just, he's just in a boat being carried along by the currents of fate or determinism. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that God's just up there saying, okay, well, I've seen, because I can see the future, I've seen that this number of people will be killed, and so we've just got to hang on till that gets there, and there's nothing that can be done about it till then. The Bible does not present that this way at all. Until... Both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed until the number is completed. God says in his word that that our days are numbered. They're written in his book. Think Think about this for a moment. The final judgment which is being cried out for here, this vengeance, this justice, is being cried out for here, that judgment will not take place until Christ returns. But God has decreed when Christ will return, right? Does God know when Jesus is going to return? Does God know the exact moment, the exact second 
that, that Christ is going to return? Absolutely so, right? Is that something that somebody besides God determined? Or did God actually decree and determine when Christ will return? Yeah, it's not that it's just God's like, that's out of my hands, you know. (laughs) Nothing I can do about that. I'm just on, I'm on the timetable of the fates. No. So God determines when Christ will come. Ultimate judgment and justice will be brought forth at the coming of Christ. Therefore, God has decreed the exact number as martyrs. Furthermore, the scriptures teach that God is patient and long-suffering and he's enduring the evil and the wicked and the oppression that goes on in this life because he wants all of his elect to come to repentance. All of his beloved chosen people. And so Jesus is not going to come back until everyone that God has chosen lives spiritually and until everyone that God has chosen to do so dies for the faith. Then he'll come back. And it's absolutely in his control. So what is being given as a comfort here to this, these people? Wait, be patient. But no, God is saying, but no, I haven't forgotten. I know. And I'm on an exact timetable. And I will bring about what you request. But you just have to wait. You just have to wait. In In this life, it is the case that So much of this life is God saying, not yet, not yet, wait, it's coming, it's coming. And if we get ahead of God's timetable, we get really discontent really quickly. These people cry out with a righteous cry and they receive a perfect answer. And so they wait. For us, too, we have to wait. We have to wait for many things. And one of the ways that someone can be comforted who has had a child murdered and they don't see justice in this life Because their murderer walks free. They can be counseled. They can be told. Trust God. And just wait. God will be just. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will avenge. Second Thessalonians chapter one. Second Thessalonians chapter one is a passage of comfort and consolation to Christians. Who are seeing persecution and oppression. Beginning verse 3. We're bound to thank God always for you brethren. As it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. For your patience and faith. in, in, In what? In all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. 
We're told over and over again in the scriptures that if we suffer with Christ, we'll be counted worthy to attain. We're called to suffer for his sake. Sentence, notice this. What is given as an encouragement to these people who are facing persecutions and tribulations, these people who abandon idols, and if they're Jews and turn to Christ, let's start with the Jews. If they're Jews and turn to Christ, their families disown them. And they say, you now are a filthy dog. You've abandoned the faith. Fathers saying to their sons, I do not know you. Get out of my house. They're Gentiles and they refuse to burn incense to the false gods. They're excluded from the trade guilds so that they can't work and make a living for their families. Many times put on trial and as this advanced, people are being stoned and then they're as the Roman persecution advanced, they're being thrown to the wild animals and torn apart in the Colosseum while people jeer and cheer. What is given as comfort to them since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, but don't you dare think about that because as, as believers, you're not supposed to think about that and take comfort or encouragement that Christ is going to come and he's going to avenge. No, the whole point here is to take comfort because God is going to make things right. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In that day, if you're a child of God and Christ comes and he casts into hell all of the wicked, you will burst forth in praise. You will praise Him for His justice. There will be a glorious shout go up that triumphs over, that drowns out the greatest shout at the biggest sporting event in all of history. Because we will see the justice of God on display and we will rejoice that He is faithful and true and just. And when, when people are in the midst of persecution and suffering like we don't see here right now, we dare not sit in our armchairs doing our armchair theology and rob them of this glorious truth. And if God calls us to suffer like they do, we must hold this truth before us as a banner. And even as we cry out and say, Lord, how long? When? When? We recognize that it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And when we have the aching and the cries in our heart, when we see loved ones hurt or persecuted, or we see injustices brought forth in this world, we can take comfort and hope that God will make it all right. And there's a day coming when justice will be fully done and fully accomplished. And because we know that God, then we can even face death. If we did not believe God is just, we would be fools. To put our lives in his hands, wouldn't we? If someone's standing there with a gun and we do not believe that there is a just God and when we die, 
we will go stand before him and he will avenge us. He will judge rightly. If we don't believe that, we would be fools not to say revocum. We would be fools not to denounce the faith because we could have no trust in God and that he would do rightly. And so, when one such as Polycarp was put on trial because he refused to burn incense to a pagan emperor, he refused to prostrate himself at the, at the temple of idolatry. And he stands and he says, 80 and six years I have served him Christ. When they say that he is to deny Christ, he says, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And on his farewell, as they tried to burn him at the stake and he didn't die, and so they thrust him through with a spear. Before that, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. He could only say that because he believed God is just. Do you believe he is just? doesn't matter if you believe it or not. He is. And you're going to face him. But I pray that you truly believe it. Because either he will welcome you home and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you have trusted in Christ and all of your sins were poured out on Christ. Or you will be embraced by his wrath. And he will hurl you into hell. Because he is just. And he is angry with the wicked every day. The scriptures say. Father help us to think through who you are carefully, righteously. Help us not to blaspheme your name. By refusing to acknowledge your justice. Or by living in sinful hatred and self-vengeance toward others. I pray that you'll be glorified in our lives. And that you will apply to our hearts the things we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen.